Weird Realities explores the paranormal, preternatural, and supernatural worlds that surround us. Here we delve into those topics that challenge us to think outside the limitations of realism, where we test the boundaries of imagination and are forced to think outside the confines and restrictions of what is normal. We are the creators, the writers, the artists, and the insane. Welcome to our Weird Realities. Welcome to the Weird Ink Sessions, where we talk with some of the world's most interesting authors, podcasters, and filmmakers about their research into paranormal phenomena, ancient civilizations, myth, folklore, and their own weird imaginings. This is Hadley Thorne, and on behalf of the Weird Team, I'm excited to bring you today's conversation with marine horror author Max Hawthorne. You may be familiar with Max's work. He is the author of the award-winning Kronos Rising novel series. And most recently, he's delved into nonfiction with marine monsters and mysteries. In addition to being a best-selling indie novelist, Max is an amateur paleontologist, blog talk radio host, world record-holding angler, avid sportsman, and conservationist. Welcome, Max. We sure are happy to have you with us today. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. I'm flattered. So, you're... Latest book is a kind of a dive into more um, nonfiction, isn't it? Yeah. Um, Monsters and Marine Mysteries is actually a collection of uh, interviews and investigations into real life um, sightings, mostly of marine creatures that aren't supposed to exist or are unidentified, a couple of terrestrial ones also. Um, I, uh, over the course of, uh, doing research for the Cronus Rising series, where you're writing, um, you know, sci-fi thrillers slash horror books about marine monsters, you do a lot of research. Because if you don't, you've got some nerd going to, like, try and call you out, like, oh, well, the meteor, meteor that destroyed the dinosaurs actually was traveling at 40,000 miles an hour, <laughs> not 50, you know, or something like that. Now, so you got to do all your research. But, um, and I ended up obviously getting into the cryptid thing, uh, angle things and all that. And I had had a few experiences of my own that were, you know, I uh, came out about um, in the book. So I, some of it I wasn't very comfortable talking about, but, you know, my uh, people were like, you know, you should just do it. And um, but I also interviewed a lot of people that have had incredible sightings, uh, most of which people don't even know they're still alive and such. I had to do a lot of digging to track some of them down, detective work, etc. And some of them were sightings where uh, there's a lot of erroneous reporting out there um, that it seems to be part of the record that I ended up correcting in Monsters and Marine Mysteries also. And it was great. They're really nice people. That's incredible. Hmm. So I know that I watched your video with the killer whale that was attacked could you tell us a little bit about that because that was just gripping and i love to watch anything marine oriented so it was really just fascinating to me well um the original video was put out on social media by a group called carcaridon carcarius which is the scientific name for the great white shark and there was a, a big group i think they may have been shut down by facebook eventually um go figure but uh they had this video on there that I was given permission to use and analyze and such. And in it, you see a uh, what turns out to be a young female Orsonus orca or killer whale swimming. It turns out off the coast of Norway. And she bears 
bite scars, which look fairly fresh, on her from uh, an obviously vicious attack. And um, like the, the whale is in bad shape. Um, people can go on and see excerpts and such and the video parts of it in um, on my YouTube channel. It's uh, Max Hawthorne's, I think, video trailers, I think it's called. I'll put it in the link when I post this Cool. because but, it's um, great. So on there, you see this animal swimming along. <clears throat> and first, it's uh, the first thing that comes to light is that she's fairly emaciated. Um, she has what they call, marine biologists refer to as a peanut head when they look at killer whales. And this is a sign you see this a lot off of like British Columbia and stuff when salmon stocks crash and the orcas that live there, uh, they start to starve. And as they lose body weight, their head becomes more bulbous, the rest of their torso, you know, it looks like there's this weird peanut shape to them, which isn't normal. They normally have a very husky kind of robust body type. Okay. So the orca, she has, um, first there's an enormous bite mark on her upper back on the dorsal region, right in front of the dorsal fin. And it's shaped when you look at her from the side like this, like triangular wedge shaped which is very unusual. And you see these jagged rips in her skin where the flesh is torn, where individual teeth went in there. And it looks like she was shaken um, by whatever grabbed her. Like you tried to like, like when a, a pit bull grabs a, a rat or a smaller dog and tries to kill it by shaking it. Um, then she has two other bites, one of which encompassed her chest region from underneath and also latched onto her right pectoral fin and about half of her pectoral fin has been sheared off, like torn off as the effects of this bite. Apparently, when it slipped off of the whale, she lost part of her fin, literally amputated. And then I also noticed upon close examination, there's a third bite, which is on her ventral region near her vent, um, where the teeth started to dig in, and then they grooved back like that. So it looks like she was attacked by something or some things. I mean, she was definitely attacked, let's put it that way. And... Uh, the, the bite marks don't seem to match anything out there. I, uh, for example, I showed the images to one of the greatest marine biologists, I think, in the world, who is a doctor of marine biology who swims with all sorts of sharks and whales. I mean, the guy does ultrasound on pregnant whale sharks the size of a bus while swimming with them. And he told me, he said that well, his knee-jerk reaction was to say it was, you know, interspecies aggression. But he said at the same time, he said he'd never seen marks like that before, pictures of marks like that. And uh, so, you know, I went through and tried to do a lot of research in terms of what this could be. Because you look at this and you see the, this damage. First, you think like interspecies aggression. Could this be another killer whale that did that? Uh, we know of one incident where uh, a newborn calf was murdered by, um, I think it was by a bull orca that wanted to mate with the cow orca. And he killed the calf. And I think his mother prevented um, its mother from protecting it. Or maybe it was vice versa. Maybe the mother killed the calf. I'm not really sure. But this didn't wasn't something like that, which would be really simple. In that incident, they pushed the calf on and they just drowned it. This looked like a predatory assault and a prolonged predatory assault where something tried to kill this animal and ripped it, you know, pieces out of it, etc. Also, this this calf, let's call her, who's not a newborn, you know, is fairly good sized. Um, there'd be no reason to, to kill her. She wouldn't be nursing, most likely at this point. Um, and it was a prolonged assault. 
it looks to me like a predator attack, but I tried to measure out the bites and everything. First, the bites that you see on there don't match the bites of a killer whale. The head was wider, the jaws more shaped like this, and the teeth are further apart. So whatever it was had a bigger head than a killer whale. I was even able to compare the rostrums, the uh, mandibular width, etc., of orca's skulls and found that if a killer whale had inflicted that big dorsal bite, where you can see the multiple rows of teeth that had penetrated, the, the orca's head would have been so large, it would have required a killer whale that was 40 feet long. And the world record is 32 or something like that. So it definitely wasn't a killer whale that did it. Nothing matched in terms of that. It wasn't a sperm whale, same thing. The jaws didn't match. It wasn't a shark bite of any kind. It certainly wasn't a uh, false killer whale, which would be even smaller. There's nothing out there. You know, people are like, oh, it's a squid. Well, a squid beak takes like chunks out, small things like this. Okay. And their, their suckers don't leave rake marks like that. This is actual tooth penetration, like I said, and shaking and stuff. So my conclusion is that something with a, a wedge-shaped head had grabbed this poor cow and you know, launched an assault on her. It may have actually been more than one something. It may have been that she was struck multiple times meaning something hit her from the top, something hit her from below, and they tried to, you know, kill her quickly. And I'm going to assume that members of the pod obviously came to her rescue and drove off her attackers. That's, you know, I mean, an assumption, but knowing orca behavior, they're very family-oriented matriarchal societies. If you attack a killer whale calf or a young killer whale, any whale in the pod, the rest of them are going to come after you like wolves. And that's not a, you know, I mean, these animals kill blue whales. So the workers are the sea's apex predators. So what out there could do this is the question. Exactly. That's what fascinated me so much about watching the video is I love to watch the documentaries on orcas because they, they're one of the animals I'm just really fascinated by. And to see the bites on this, it looked just from my not professional um perspective like it was shaped more like a crocodile or alligator mouth that was going after her but i can't imagine the size of something like that no you would i mean the minimum width going very conservatively assuming she was a fairly young calf okay the minimum width of the bite is at least two feet across this way and for the record the largest crocodile on record low long the one that was captured in the philippines I believe his total skull length was, wait, I'll tell you exactly. Let me crunch some numbers here. Hold on a second. So his total skull length was 2.3 feet. So I think it was like 27 inches in length. That's length. This is two feet wide. So Lolong's head was probably only... 10, 12 inches in width, understand? It would take a crocodile of Dinosuchus proportions to do this. So, I mean, there. Uh, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say the, I, I compared bite marks, et cetera. The only thing that seemed to be possible was a, an extinct species of Mosasaur called Prognathodon or Mosasaurus or something like that. Now, that's obviously ridiculous because we know these animals have been extinct since the, the end of the Cretaceous. But at the same time, there have been dozens and dozens of sightings of what people have claimed have been extant mosasaurs. I mean, if you just Google living mosasaurs or something, you'll find tons of sightings all around New Zealand and different areas. So it's very interesting. Well, that's the thing about 
water that fascinates me is we really don't know what's in there. I mean, we really don't. So I think that a, a species like that could totally be in the Mariana Trench or somewhere we just don't know about. Well, mosasaurs are air-breathing animals. Uh, were. I'm sorry. I don't want to say are. That'd be assuming. But, uh, and they were probably capable, like sea turtles, of holding their breath for one hour or maybe even two hours. I mean, sperm whales can do that. They could probably dive to extreme depths, etc. But the, going into the Marianas Trench would be highly unlikely. Uh, that's incredible amount of water pressure to survive and it's possible that they are equipped to do it but I mean their pickings would be slim down there they would be much more likely to be you know pelagic or service near the surface predators and such you know a steady supply of uh, you know food and air most importantly I mean orcas don't really travel very deep themselves they I think they they won't go below 500 meters or something like that so they usually hang out from the surface to around 300 400 feet that's their, you know, their ballpark, let's say. I would say a mosasaur or whatever, some sort of marine reptile like that would probably might be able to have a slightly deeper range, but it wouldn't be hanging out in the ultra deep abysses of the ocean. It's just not likely. Would there be no point? It'd be like you going to, I don't know, driving 50 miles out of your way into the middle of the desert for a, a roadside hot dog when you live in a city and there's restaurants in every corner. Put it meta metaphorically. So what do you think did it? I think it's some sort of marine reptile of some kind. I I mean, I couldn't say what, but whatever it is, is very big. And it has a long wedge-shaped teeth with very large, I mean, wedge-shaped set of jaws with, I mean, it had to encompass the back of a small orca. And uh, so, I mean, anything's possible. But if I was going to say, looking at the fossil record, et cetera, it would have to be either some sort of marine crocodile that has never been seen. And there were extinct marine crocs that were adapted entirely to oceanic life. They had short stubby flippers instead of legs. And they had a tail with flukes, let's say, you know, a caudal fin instead of a regular tail. And mosasaurs were like that as well, obviously. They were marine monitor lizards, etc. So something along those lines seems like a good bet. And it would have to take something very big and very bad to attack an orca. Or more than one. Yeah. I mean, there have been sightings where pairs of these creatures attacked a boat where they were seen feeding on a whale carcass and such. So it's not uh, outside their own possibility. Let's put it that way. But that's not in the in the book, I don't think. Oh, yes, it is. No. I stand corrected. It is in there. <laughs> Somebody so, needs a nap. <laughs> so you you mentioned that there's been more accounts of these types of creatures. Yes. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Um, I don't have data in front of me, but off of the coast of New Zealand, for example, there have been a heavy concentration of sightings. Uh, they go back. I, I was on a show once and I had all the data in front of me and I recounted sightings going back like a hundred years or more. And they, they went boom, 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 boom. Um, the most recent one that I'm aware of is is in the book also, is a uh, guy I interviewed in 20, I think it was 2014. He was working on the Carnival Breeze, one a ship in the cruise line. And he and a bunch of people that were passengers, he was working on the ship from the top deck, saw a creature swimming alongside the ship. 
and pacing it for a while, et cetera, surface for air. And they describe it as looking like an immense, almost blackish or super dark gray, slick skinned animal that had a head like an immense alligator or crocodile. And it was actually pacing the boat. And they, they said they only saw about half of it. And that half was at least 50 feet long. So that's incredible. So are you wanting to go to New Zealand and go investigating? Well, I got a child, so it's a little difficult to pull up stakes and say, Hey, I'm going to New Zealand and go monster fishing, but you know, anything's possible in the future. So that's true. I wouldn't put it past me. <laughs> Take a big fishing rod, the real one, a Mosasaur, let me tell you. Well, one of the other things I heard you speak on was giant turtles. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, one of the people I interviewed in Monsters and Marine Mysteries, uh, well, first, one of the things that inspired me to write the book was uh, checking out a, a sighting by Gary LaMotta. And Gary is a fisherman who uh, from Vancouver. Um, he passed away a number of years ago, but uh, he and a friend of his, uh, they saw a turtle that was nearly 40 feet long that was apparently feeding off of salmon or something off the coast of Vancouver. This was in 1969, if memory serves. Um, people have to reference the book, honestly, to get all the details. But uh, Gary was out there, and the uh, this is one of the mistakes that's made in the, the records out there. People always thought that him and this his friend Earl, Earl Stoziger, were in the same boat, that Earl was an employee of Gary's or something, and that wasn't the case. They both had, they had two separate boats that were like 38 feet long, and Gary had gotten out ahead of Earl, and he was, I don't know, a mile or more ahead of him, putt-putting along, and uh, I think it was, uh, God, I can't remember the name of that inlet, but they, uh, he, he was obsessed with his new Super 8 camera. Now, in 1969, the Super 8 camera for people making home movies was like, you know, your iPhone when it first came out or something. So Gary was recording everything. His you know, family told me they had boxes and boxes of all sorts of old home movies and stuff like that. But uh, he got on the radio, he started calling his friend and telling him, there's a sea monster here. Get over here, get over here, get over here. And he was filming it. By the time Earl, whom I managed to do an interview with, great guy, love him to death, um, and that's where I got all the, you know, corrections to what the sighting and the circumstance, et cetera. Uh, this thing had submerged and it was perched on a uh, submerged shelf, like an uprising of stones. And I think it was about maybe 30 or 40 feet below the boat. Um, the water, I think, uh, I, I, I'm guessing, I think it, he said it was around 12 fathoms. So maybe uh, the total depth. And I think it was shallower than that. It was sitting on this um, this rise there and they could see it looking down like their boats were on either side and he was like look it's down there it's down there and it, he saw what initially he thought was some sort of impossibly large sea lion like animal that's what it was sort of built like it had it was very pale in color almost white like a palish gray sitting down there and it was on this shelf and just kind of chilling out which sea turtles are known to do and then eventually um, it just took off whoosh and it was gone very fast swimmer. So I had seen like the film that's out there and people want to like people go on my website, maxhawthorne.com. They can see, um, just look up Gary LaMotta or a uh, turtle and they'll, they'll see there's their footage and they'll see like stills and all this stuff. 
but uh, the footage is so old and dark and grainy that you just see this blob like sticking up out of the, the water. People thought it was a fin or something like that. And Gary had said that uh, in his testimony that it was like looking at him, you know, it stuck his head up out of the water and he described the head and neck portion to be like eight feet long. Now picture a turtle whose head and neck alone is eight feet. That's a very, very big animal. I mean, it's usually most people floor to ceilings in a room that you're sitting in and it would be at least on a yard wide or more at that point. But uh, so I, I took some of the frames and I enhanced them, you know, just adjusted the contrast and the lighting and stuff like that. And boom, next thing you know, I'm looking at the face, the head, the neck of an, some sort of gigantic turtle. And you could see it's like sort of turn towards the guy filming it. And it's looking at it. It's like twisting, you know, right at him, which is a little disconcerting because an animal that size with that speed was probably a piscivore being a fish eater and stuff, you would not want to be in the water with a turtle the size of a bus no. because, you know, things happen, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it was jarring. And and I knew that like, Gary had done a sketch of it and he described this like a giant shellless turtle, sort of like a leatherback, but more slim, large front flippers, small rear flippers, and capable of terrific speed, as he called it. And the, the images, which are on my site are, or in the book, are like jarring. I mean, you're looking at it and there's no denying that there was this immense turtle there. So, I mean, short of a carcass, you know, or a live, you know, like video or a tissue sample, I mean, this is pretty much proof positive that there is some sort of immense turtle out there, which is probably the biggest known marine reptile. Unless you got a mosasaur, you know, that's swimming around like they, they said. So. That's incredible. I remember, um, Gosh, back in the 70s or early 80s, there was a movie about a giant turtle. Do you remember that? Yes. Carl Weathers was in it. Apollo yes. Creed. Yes. yes. Well, this wasn't that big, <laughs> but still, I mean, a turtle that size would have to weigh like 20 tons, you know. And what's really interesting is that when I was, you know, like, I want to be thorough. I mean, like, I, I actually assigned a scientific name to this undocumented species, Call it, I called it Titanicellus lamati, which basically means Lamata's giant turtle or Titanic turtle, which it should have because he basically documented it. Um, but uh, I wanted like historical references, historical sightings, all this stuff. And I went back and I found oodles of them. And I put like six or so of them or eight of them in the book going back from the 1800s all the way to more recent times. And I mean, like there was one that um, it was only like a few years ago or something where it was like circling some swimmers off the coast of New Jersey. This person had been like bleeding and washing their leg in the water. And all of a sudden this 15 foot turtle started circling this woman and her fiance rushed out to throw her to safety and stuff and all that. And, uh, you know, like it's bigger than a leatherback at 15 feet. So what is it? Is this a, a juvenile this or, you know, who knows what? You would think you would have heard more about that. Mm -hmm. Well, an animal like that probably lays, gives birth to live young at sea. And that's not outside the realm of possibility because they, based on a recent fossil of a possible mosasaur egg that they found, a lot of these prehistoric marine reptiles did what like anacondas and other boids do, where they keep the eggs in their body and 
right when they're about to give birth, the eggs are like just a membrane and they hatch internally and they expel them into the sea. In the case of mosasaurs, they think they may have laid eggs that just had these thin, flexible membranes and the babies just broke through in the water and they were you know, alive, obviously went up for air and did their thing. So it's not outside their own possibility that a, a turtle could have adapted the same way. It's still basically laying eggs. It's just delaying the process until they, you know, because I mean, a turtle that size could not crawl ashore to excavate a nest. Gravity and all that. Okay, I was thinking why. <laughs> um, that's It's just amazing to me that there's so much out there we really don't know. I'm 100% confident that this species of turtle is there. Uh, that it's, you know, there's just the evidence is there. They got footage. So I know it's crude footage, it's old footage, et cetera. But, you know, you can see the thing when it, it's enhanced and you can see it like bobbing the head and neck in the water and stuff. It's, you know, it's a living, breathing, swimming animal. I'm sure in your research that you've come across, which Finley and I live off of the Gulf Coast. So um, obviously I, we're, we're very I vested in what's there. going on down here. Uh -huh. <laughs> and I was going to ask you about um, in Pensacola, Florida, off the coast, right. there was an account of, I think, four boys, teenagers that were attacked by a sea monster. Uh -huh. That's what it was said. I think one of them lived, but the other three. He, he passed away recently, actually. I would I would have liked to have spoken to him. But uh, yeah, that incident is explored in Monsters and Marine Mysteries, and it is possible that this one of these turtles was responsible for this. So, really? I mean, the behavior is the same thing you see with Gary sighting, and there was another sighting off Vancouver Island of another fisherman who had the same experience. He described a gigantic turtle, like head sticking up and looking at him. And these animals, they do what's called spy hopping. They can see outside in the air. So they can stick their heads out and look around and see what's going on out there. And they may be curious. They may be hungry. I mean, who knows what? But these boys, you know, these poor guys were initially in a raft when this thing approached them. And according to the account from the, uh, the sole survivor, he described this long head like a telephone pole and, and big eyes on it. And it came down and it grabbed one of his friends and took him under screaming and stuff and you know, all that. So... I mean, it's possible. I actually spoke to somebody from Pensacola recently who, and it wasn't in the book because the book was already out when I interviewed him about this, but uh, he described fishing off of a pier there near the military base. And when he was a boy, I think it was maybe 20 years ago or something. I'd have to check the video. But, um, and he said they, they saw a turtle like the one in, the, in my book like Gary's turtle and a guy next to them was shark fishing off the pier and he's using very heavy tackle with steel line. And he was cranking up like five and even six foot sharks at times, pulling them up over the side, pulling the hook out, tossing them back in, bleeding, etc. And then he said this immense turtle, they saw like 20 feet of it came up and it grabbed one of the guy's sharks under the surface of the water. And then it tore off the line and then it broke the line, steel line. And then it, and it was gone. Now, that's what he says. He doesn't have any evidence or anything like that. He was a kid at the time, but him and his dad both saw the same thing. So they could be blowing smoke up my proverbial butt. <laughs> but um, it's interesting because it was a, it seemed like, you know, it's a confirmed shark killer. It was attracted by blood, it fed on fish. 
you know, and it's also, I, I would theorize that it's possible that the quote super predator, and I've, I've gone public with this in the past, is most likely one of these turtles. You know, that nine foot shark alpha from years back that, you know, caused all this stir and such. You know, I mean, the turtle, a turtle like that fits the profile perfectly. Is that the shark that was tagged? That yes. And something chased it down to almost 2,000 feet, ate it, swallowed the tag and it. Body temperature jumped from like 40, to, I think, to 78 degrees. I think it was 42 to 78 degrees Fahrenheit. Stayed there for the next eight days. And then the tag was expelled into the ocean where it eventually drifted ashore or something, I think acid etched from being in this thing's stomach and such so it's incredible mm -hmm. well gary's turtle would be big enough to eat a nine foot white shark i mean the head and neck alone was eight feet according to him so that's not much of a stretch i've seen snapping turtles swallow incredibly large fish whole oh yeah so they just look like a pelican or something like that you know yeah uh I've seen huge snapping turtles, so this is, is very scary to me to think of a giant turtle out there that eats people. Well, so. I don't know if it eats people, <laughs> but, you know, if the Pensacola incident, it was true. And if it was a turtle, then, I mean, I guess that's, I mean, you got to think logically. It's it's a matter of predator-prey thing is a matter of relative size, you know? I mean, like, some sea turtles are herbivorous, like the leather, well, no, the leatherback eats jellyfish, so that would technically be a carnivore, but, you know, that's not much prey. Jellyfish aren't exactly agile or anything like that. But, uh, you know, the green turtles are pretty much herbivores, but then you have turtles like loggerheads that are omnivorous, and they will eat baby sharks and lobsters and fish, and you know, as well as seaweed and other things. So uh, if you picture scale that up, I mean, if they eat a baby shark or a dogfish and you scale up the size, it's quite relative. And if a person was in the water with a, an omnivorous or even a, or a piscivorous turtle and you're the size of its prey, it's quite possible it's going to, you know, try something different. I can see that. So let me ask you, what do you think about... Um, like I said, living on the Gulf Coast, I had family, my, my family um, grew they had a fish camp down at Grand Isle. And so I grew up going down there and going fishing. Mm -hmm. And I know like after these big hurricanes come through, a lot of stuff gets stirred up. So when you were doing research, did you find that there's more sightings after these storm systems come through or does that have any impact? The sightings are, are so far apart. I mean, the, in the Pensacola sighting, there was a storm front and, um, when I looked at the uh, the Gary LaMotta footage, at first I thought there, there was like storm clouds in the distance, but if that's the case, it was far distant. And Gary told me, I mean, it, I'm sorry, Earl told me that when they went out, it was a bright, clear morning, not a you know, cloud in the sky, flat, calm, that kind of stuff. But I mean, fish respond to pressure fronts, changes in, in pressure. Uh, they'll bunch up in certain areas. So it's certainly possible that if a storm was approaching, let's say even in the distance or far distance, that it could cause the, an animal's prey to congregate in a certain area, then it would attract predators, obviously. Um, in the case of the uh, Vancouver thing, I mean, they have salmon runs and things like that. So that's a lot of fish in one area, just like Kodiak bears, you know, in Alaska, they all line up at the trough for on the salmon run, et cetera. So a marine predator following the, you know, the, the buffet, let's say, is only logical. 
So when you've been doing research, have you actually gone out with any marine biologist and been out at sea? Or are you primarily just going through um, records and eyewitness accounts from like on newspapers or what's your process? Um, I've never gone out with a marine biologist. That's almost sounds like dating or something like that. But um, I have been at sea hundreds of times. I mean, literally saltwater fishing, et cetera, and seen a lot. I've filleted, so we'll call it dissected a lot of fish if you want, et cetera. But uh, for the purposes of the book, I did video interviews with people. I obviously, my firsthand accounting of things that I've experienced, and then obviously historical records and then scientific research, et cetera. I bounced a, you know, a bunch of stuff off of that marine biologist I mentioned, who was mentioned in the book also. Um, so that would be uh you know some of my take on it and obviously logic and common sense so. okay, let me see um you meant you mentioned eyewitness accounts so let's get mm -hmm. into that okay do you like my daughter's mug that i keep stealing for interviews by the way <laughs> yeah if she she sees this i'm gonna get my butt kicked <laughs> Dad, did you use my stitch mug again? I was wondering where your cats were. Oh, no, I shut the door because what happens <laughs> is if I leave this door open, my office, then all of a sudden you will see a huge puffy tail, go, <laughs> like a flag go by. It's happened on big shows live, and it was like, you know, or they all, if that, I don't pay attention to them, want to like, you know, sink his claws into my ankle or my calf, you know, playing around. I'll be sitting there going, yeah, and then, Hold on a second. Uh, 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 uh. Yeah, just kidding. I would never hit a cat, obviously, but you know, they're they're comedians, you know. So and they've been guests on a lot of shows. I they're saw like, them. I yeah. saw them on Three Beards. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the star of the show. They steal the show every time. But go ahead. I'm okay, so so your eyewitness accounts. Tell me all about them, because like I said, I'm fascinated. Um. Well, I mean, Earl was one of the people I spoke to. And I interviewed him, I think, one or two times. I'm not sure. But we did like a Zoom call or something um, and discussed every aspect of what he saw out there. And you know, I, I mean, I got all the details. As somebody whose hobby is fishing and is a passionate angler and has been on the ocean so many times, I'm very thorough when it comes to marine sightings. You know, I want to know everything, what the weather was like, what the temperature was like, was it windy? Where was the sun in the sky? All the conditions. What were you doing out there? You know, were you fishing? What were you using for bait? What kind of rig did you have? All this stuff. There was another guy named Rodney Ross who was is the sole survivor of what they called the Southside Sea Monster. And some for some reason, the media changed the name. I forget what they were calling it. Um, it's in the book, but... Uh, but they, this was an enormous marine predator that attacked a series of boats over five days back in 1976. And uh, I would ask questions like, uh, what kind of fish were you fishing for? What were you using for bait? Were you putting chum in the water? You know, I want to know what could have attracted this thing to that area and to their boat. Why was it behaving like that? Um, were you anchored up? Were you drift fishing? You know, all this stuff. And so when you talk to these all these different witnesses, you get firsthand accountings and stuff, and you're able to get a lot more out of it than, you know, like most histor historical accounts or versions of it, et cetera. And you also find things that people miss. The Rodney Ross one for the Southside um, Sea Monster was interesting because it was 
almost like, uh, and you, you know, I don't care if people call me a, uh, what's the term, um, a conspiracy theorist. Where they try and paint you as a wacko or something like that. But uh, back then, it was very strange because Rodney told me how they had um, some guy showed up at their house after their sighting. I don't know if their sighting was the second or the third day, third attack on different boats there. But uh, he said this guy showed up and he was like working with a newspaper or something. And I think he had an artist with him and they wanted a drawing of what attacked him and his father on their boat. And they described it completely. It was like this immense sort of like, almost like a giant angler fish, like a goose fish, but with this weird, head that came up like a column tapered with like eyes at the top of it and this immense mouth that was like 15 feet wide lined with teeth and they did and it had this long broad giant body like 50 feet long or something like that it was enormous the size of, of a big humpback whale and Damn. yeah i mean he said that it tried to eat the the transom of the boat where he was standing and he said this thing was so big its jaws could have literally enveloped the back half of their boat that's how large this was and if his dad hadn't gunned the engine and gotten them away from it then he probably would have been killed but uh so when this guy drew this this artist etc they said it was exactly like what they saw but then when it appeared in the paper they changed it to this weird long like almost like a chinese dragon green slender weird fins all this stuff nothing like what they reported and the story and they would change the name and all this other stuff you know so i don't know how or why all that happened but i got all the dirt all the details and i put it all together in the book so well obviously me and everyone listening are gonna go out and get this book oh <laughs> uh, i wanted to order it there's well, another one I'm sorry. I'm, I, oh, no, no, go ahead. Um, there's another thing in the, in the book called the um, Sanibel Sea uh, Serpent, I think it is, or something like that. And uh, this is just from like five or six years ago or something, uh, maybe seven years ago at this point. But this couple was down there, and their video is on YouTube. And they saw what they said they thought was a giant snake, like grab a manatee and drag it under. I right. saw that. I saw mm -hmm. that. Um footage yeah. and i watched the footage you know and people were dismissing saying oh it's just a manatee rolling but i watched it you know and when i was in college i had classes in kinesiology and anatomy and everything else so kinesiology is the study of movement objects in motion okay and when you see this manatees there's a couple of them frolicking near the surface and all of a sudden you see something wraps around one and then it yanks it under Okay, this isn't a manatee submerging or rolling. You can even see as it gets pulled under, you see the head appear at one point and then tail at another, you know, and it's dragged under and it doesn't come back. Okay. And so I interviewed uh, Dave Carlin, who was him and his wife. Then they, I think they were engaged or dating. I don't know. It was a while back, but um, they saw this thing and he described it to me and it's in the book. And um, he said that it was about the size of a bus, whatever it was. He said, uh, but not super wide, meaning it was about eight feet in diameter. Well, I'm sorry, four feet thick. So about well, four feet, okay, and uh, but long. And it flew under their boat, swam, but you know, at high speed. And then as it approached the manatees, they described something shooting out from it that looked like a telephone pole that wrapped around the manatee and pulled it under. And then they got terrified and they they booked, but they got it on video, and. 
So to me, that sounds like a cephalopod of some kind, like either a, a really big octopus or a squid, and a squid in particular, because a, four, a squid four feet thick would be immense. I mean, you know, squids yeah. are long, cylindrical, yeah. tapered things. And the whole thing of like a telephone pole shooting out of it, a lot of squid have when you look at squid anatomy, you have tentacles and you have arms. So an octopus has eight arms. Okay. They're all like pretty much the same size. A squid has eight short arms and then two, depending on species, Humboldt's don't have these, for example, but a lot of them have what they call hunting tentacles or clubs. And these is a pair that are kept retracted. And when they approach prey, they shoot out like the giant squid, Architutus has this. And then they have these, like, we'll call them leaf-shaped ends, appendages, the clubs, that are stuck together like Velcro. And as they approach the prey item, they open up like a mouth and they slap onto it. And they're lined with teeth. Either they have teeth that ring their suckers or they have teeth that, like the colossal squid, that come out of the center of the sucker, like hooks, okay, that dig in. And there's no escape once they latch onto you. And then it grabs like that, like, an, like a mouth, and then it pulls it at speed back towards the arms where it's enveloped and the squid begins to tear its prey apart and eat it alive with its beak. Okay. So their description would match a very, very big squid or an octopus using its arms to shoot out, wrap around this poor manatee and drag it under. When I looked at the footage, it, it looked like something grabbed the sand, yanks like that. You could see it, watch it again and again and again. It's like the disturbance, the wood around it, etc. But what was really disturbing for me was I took the individual frames and like I told I like to enhance things to see things you know I'm not doing anything fancy here like that. I just hit like the enhance button on my you know, monitor to make you know things pop out and when I did that for these key frames for this we'll call it an attack I started seeing um, what they call fogging okay is a technical term and that's where you see somebody being interviewed, let's say, and they're talking about a mob hit or something like that. And they don't want to be identified. And maybe they alter their voice or something like that. But their face is like blocked out by pixels. You've seen this, right? Yes. Okay. Or or if you have video footage of somebody and there's somebody in the background and you don't have permission to show their face, you'll pixelate. You know, it's called fogging. They block them out so that there's no legal ramifications. You're not showing them. Okay. So somebody put boxes of fogging on certain key frames of this video. I mean, Dave told me he, it was very weird for him. He said that when they gave it to somebody to put on YouTube, the footage was in HD, but after it was put on YouTube, it lost quality. He didn't know why he told me this plain as day. It's, it's in the book. And, um, but when I did enhance each frame, the fogging doesn't show until you enhance the frames. You take a frame, just hit enhance, and boom, you see the square around certain sections. It moves like that, and it's pixelated, and it blurs what's there. It's very subtle. So whoever did it, in my opinion, is very well done. But you wouldn't know unless you did what I did. So it was like certain key frames are disguising what's actually there. I don't know what's there. You know, Am I looking at the face of a manatee with like suckers stuck to it? I mean, I have no idea. But to me, it looks like somebody went out of their way to conceal certain frames, like 10 or 12 keyframes of this attack. 
So, and if you go, if you get Monsters and Marine Mysteries, and I like to tell people the Kindle book is always good because you can enlarge images and things like that. I actually take those frames and I show how the fogging took place and a whole bunch of them. There's the original, there's the fog version, and you see it. So it's not my imagination. Why do you think someone would um, pixelate it? You think it's just because of tourism that they would, the government might not want it out? Well, like that in the water? I mean, like when Shark Alpha was eaten, and this, you know, you remember that it went viral. This this documentary was rushed out about this thing, and they dismissed it by saying that, oh, they it must have been a just a sixteen foot white shark killed and ate her. Okay, and I, I discussed this in, in Monsters and Marine Mysteries, and if you watch the first video, I mean, the first documentary, the guy that. You know, the investigation, you could see he really wasn't convinced himself, the investigator, but he was sort of like, in my opinion, going along with it. Okay. And the truth is, is that their analysis of this, they needed some way to say that the internal stomach temperature of a 16 foot great white shark matched the super predators of 78 degrees. Okay. So they have this supposed 16 foot white shark near the surface and they're holding like a a FLIR, one of these thermal imagers or something like that. Okay, and the shark just breaks the surface. It's a wash in the waves. And for a split second, and they boop, and they somehow are able to say that its stomach temperature is 78 degrees. Now, let's be realistic. The water is, who knows what, 42 degrees. The shark's body, where it just breaks the surface for a second, is covered still in 42 degree water. But somehow, your magical device is able to penetrate through that water, that cold water, and get to the, the stomach of that shark that's probably three or four feet down and is able to say that it's 78 degrees. Frankly, I'm not buying it, okay, at all. Okay, but the other thing is, uh, so anyway, without going into the whole big thing, I'm sorry to answer your question, but I think that when people have a, there's a panic on their hands, everybody's talking about there's something out there, it's eating great white sharks, all this stuff. You know, people want you to like, just, you know, dismiss that. It was just a bigger white shark and, and pay your taxes, okay? And go to work and whatever, this type of stuff, okay? Seriously, I mean, you know how it is, okay, out there. You know, you see things in politics happening and something big scandal pops, then some other scandal is distracts from it, okay? But, uh, for the record, a 16-foot great white could not catch and kill a 9- or 10-footer because the bigger the shark gets, the slower it gets. See, So a 9-foot white shark is probably at the peak of white shark speed, probably swimming at 30 miles an hour or something like that, Okay, whereas a 16-footer is probably, let me think, I, I did some figures in the book there on it, probably able to do maybe... 20 miles an hour, I'm guessing. But it would be considerably slower, is my point. Okay, when they breach, they, they check the speeds and stuff. And the larger sharks are nowhere near as fast as the smaller. And that's simple logic. Cartilage, skeleton, can't swim as fast. I mean, whale sharks and basking sharks are sloths. They swim at like four or five miles an hour, let's say. But a blue whale that's three times their size can do 30 because its skeleton is made of bone. Sharks get slow as they get you know, bigger. Their skeletons are like rubber, just not designed to handle muscle and pressure and 
you know, that size. So the point is, is a nine footer is so much faster, more maneuverable. A 16 foot would never be able to catch it. And Alpha was attacked multiple times by the super predator. You see the tracking data, et cetera. So back to the thing with the uh, the Florida thing. I mean, if if you're looking at things from, you know, uh, a tourism thing, like you said, then I would imagine that nobody would, if there was, you know, some sort of very large cephalopod out there that's eating manatees, then obviously it'd be capable of doing something bad to a person too, Definitely. you know? Well, and in the, I interviewed this, I'm sorry. Isn't there an account of a squid attacking like a big boat? I want to say like. I think there was a, a World War II story and they, they interviewed the guy where a, a giant squid was um, snatching people off a life raft from a sunken like warship. And it would take people in the middle of the night, reach over the side, and it would follow the lifeboat. And they realized people were disappearing, so they tied themselves all together. And then it grabbed and mangled this one poor guy who still has the scars, if he's still alive now. I mean, I think that interview was a decade or two back. But um, And they were able to attack the tentacle, and they I think they cut a piece of it off or something like that. So um, there's stuff in the book about, I mean, I, a giant squid that killed and ate a young right whale. I documented that in there. Uh, there was one where it's one, a big squid um, with tentacles as thick as a man's like thigh grabbed a uh, like a hundred foot like a trimaran, you know, one of those racing yachts with the sails, and grabbed it and almost brought it to a full standstill. And the guy said, I mean, that literally he saw tentacles as thick as his leg. Now that's an immense squid. I mean, if you look at the, there's photos in there of regular sized squid. There, the tentacles are only like this thick. So how big is a squid with tentacles that thick? You know, I mean, that's that's no joking matter. So I, I believe that these largest squid, based on historical reports, historical, I'm sorry, historical reports, should be historical. Some, yeah, the biggest ones probably feed on whales. So there's a, and there's a lot of reports, historical records of that. I mean, what, why was the squid attacking the trimaran? You know what I mean? What was the point? You know, it grabbed it by the back near the rudder. Etc. And if you look at a trimaran from below, it looks like these three narrow holes. It probably thought that it was a trio of like finback whales or blue whales swimming along, and it took its shot, grabbing it by the flukes to try and immobilize it and pull it under. And after a while, it realized it wasn't a living creature it was holding onto, and it broke off. But it had evil intentions. So, and that's documented that attack, by the way, on the yacht and all. I don't know what I'm looking up when we get off here. <laughs> that fascinates me. Mm -hmm. so I've noticed, like in the in the headlines, like this summer, there have been a couple of off the coast. I want to say, like North Carolina and Florida, mm -hmm. there were some attacks that, you know, usually they'll say shark attack or, and it was marine predator. Mm -hmm. it didn't say what it was. That's interesting. I thought. I, so, I, I mean, yeah. my mind immediately went to what are they not telling us? Mm -hmm. I mean, you could certainly email me the, these links and stuff. I'm not familiar with it, but then, you know, I'm not omniscient and all that. But, uh, yeah, I mean, if somebody puts Marine Predator, that's right away. You're like, mm, you know, they had like a, a finback whale like uh, a few years back, wash ashore. I think it was in New York, Long Island, maybe or something. And it had unusual bite marks on it. And they were going to do a necropsy. And they never said what it was, you know. Yeah, I want to follow up. I want to know what happened to this stuff. Yeah, I mean, if, if baleen whales are extremely vulnerable to, uh, if they're, you know, for if, uh, an immense squid, for example, 
would have an easy time taking down a baleen whale. I mean, baleen whales aren't aggressive to begin with. They don't have any teeth. You know, uh, I mean, it's a, it's like a manatee. You know, it's a giant smorgasbord, a lot of meat there and stuff. So, and they're not known for defending one another. Like when orcas go after one, it's not like they fight back. That incident where the, the squid killed the baby right whale, the mother was right there and she never did anything except get distressed. You would think a mother would rush to her calf's defense and try and push her to the surface or, or, or you know, strike the, the squid with her head or something like that. And she didn't do anything. Just panicked. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. Well, I so, have to ask this question because sure. this is one of the questions that I, I love to ask people. And that is, what is the strangest experience you've personally had that has kind of changed the way you thought about everything else? Like, what have you learned or what have you experienced firsthand that has made all of this just more... Jarring? Yes. Um, there are two incidents in... Um, Monsters and Marine Mysteries. They're not at sea, though. Now, you would think, like, with my, you know, hundreds of outings out there that I would be seeing sea monsters left and right and stuff like that. I suspect I'm in the wrong place at the wrong time. But um, I had two terrestrial encounters that really shook me up. Um, and I, I, you know, I was, I was pressured, not pressured, but convinced a while back to discuss one of these on a show. I don't know if I discussed the other one or not. I might have. I don't really like talking about this stuff, but um, uh, okay. So, November 22nd of 2016. And I know this date because I walked in the house and I grabbed a piece of paper and I drew what, you know, we saw, etc. Um, I had picked up my daughter from aftercare and uh, let's see. She would have been six at the time. No, let me think. Uh, seven. Sorry, seven years old. And uh, we were driving home, and it was probably like past 6 p.m. And like Thanksgiving time, you know, it's dark by 4 p.m. the East Coast and stuff. So uh, it was definitely dark out, and it was um, snow flurries. And it was windy. Like, I remember the flurries were swirling around a lot and stuff, but they weren't like setting, you know, like it was a light like sprinkling, but the, the asphalt was still uh, too warm. It's like 36 degrees out. So it wasn't really like collecting. Okay. There was no, uh, you know, it was like a sprinkling, we'll call it. Okay. And um, we were driving around and it was near where uh, we live. Um, and I live near the woods. So, I mean, literally, if I, my window is, you know, my yard, if I go like 80 feet to my right, I'm in the woods, okay? And I get all sorts of wildlife out back from white-tailed deer to wild turkeys to uh, bobcats. I mean, I had a, a, a mountain lion out here once. So, it's not like there's, you know, there, there's a lot of stuff out here. I'm not in the city. And... Uh, I was driving along, and we were going through a development, which is also near the woods, and I saw something in the, the street ahead of me, and there was nobody out there. I mean, everybody was already snug in their beds, not in their beds, but you know, eating dinner or whatever, and um, remember, it's like windy, and there's like some flurries flying around, 
and I see something dark, a dark object in the street ahead of us. We're on like a pretty much level stretch of road. And I thought it was like some garbage or box or something like that. So I literally said out loud, I said, uh-oh, I said, we got something in the road ahead. At which point Ava, she like leans forward from the, you know, from her car seat, which was on that side, she was looking also. And so I was going, you know, you're in a development, so you're going slow to begin with, slippery conditions, et cetera. So at this point, I just started crawling toward it. And my intention was I was going to straddle whatever this was. It wasn't big, you know, like a big. And uh, I, I didn't want to run over it. I mean, if it was a box of nails or something like that, you know what I mean? You don't want to yeah. you know, get a blowout. So I'm like literally like aiming and stuff. And as I'm getting closer to it, the box starts to move and it, it starts to come up a little bit. And I'm still convincing myself that this is a box or something, some dark object, um, because it was windy. So I figured this is the flap of the box, you know, like going like that. Okay. But <laughs> it wasn't a box. And it starts to sort of like stand up more or less. They push itself upright. And I'm looking, and now I can see it's some sort of life form. And I'm like, now I stop, and I don't know how far away I was, maybe two car lengths, something like that. And I'm like, I'm like, it's in my headlights. And I'm like, is that an animal? Like, I'm, I'm thinking this. And I see its face. And um, I don't care what people think. I'm nuts, whatever. They can say what they want. No, they weren't there. Judge you, don't worry. No, no, no. But, you know, people like, there's always, you know, like, like, like I had no reason to make this stuff up. You know, it wasn't like going to make me rich or famous or anything like that, you know? And um, its head was about the size of an apple, maybe a small apple. And it had like this, in the headlights, okay? It had like this dark gray skin and like black eyes. And its mouth, which was open at this point, was black. And uh, I think it had sort of like a shaggy, almost like a mane behind its head or something like that. Like the head seemed to be protruding from something. You know what I mean? Like sticking out. Mm -hmm. And it had this expression on its face like this, like, 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 like that. Like it was very angry or upset. And I take this as well. If you had a 4,000, 5,000 pound SUV bearing down on you with, with your headlights in your face and you were a small creature, you'd probably be a little scared or upset too, you know? And so I, I like, I looked at it and I had no idea what I'm staring at. And every animal in the world, especially from that region, is going through my head at light speed. I'm trying to identify this thing. A possum, no. A raccoon, no. Woodchuck, no. I mean, it looked like nothing like that. It was this hairless, almost simian-like face, like a homunculus or something like that. And I'm like, like, I'm like, I said, like, like, what the hell is that? I don't normally, like, use language to get in front of my daughter, but it just slipped out. And as I said this, it went... It jumped up and it, it was in the air now and it had wings. And if people don't believe me, I don't care. Okay, I'm just saying. And so it like boom, these wings like come out of nowhere. And it's now about I don't know, maybe eye level with me, but once again about maybe I don't know, thirty feet away, something like that. It's illuminated in my headlights. Okay. And the wings, it's just like hovering. And the wings are vibrating like 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 a dragonfly's. They're like going just like to help it hold position. 
okay? And it's looking right at us, okay? And the, it had two sets of wings. They were long movables like that. They were identical in terms of size, and they were shimmering and vibrating. And the weird thing was, in retrospect, I think this thing could camouflage itself. And I think when it was on the ground, the reason it looked gray was it was assuming the color of the asphalt. Okay. This is just my, my opinion. Because in the air, and it was definitely the same animal or creature, or whatever you want to call it, it looked different. It had like this almost ethereal quality to it. It was kind of silvery and white. And the wings were like almost glittering on the edges. Like if it hadn't been illuminated by my headlights, I don't know that I would have seen it. You know, like, but it was right there. And it's so crazy because I've heard of people seeing things mm -hmm. in the woods that, um, They'll, they'll call it like the predator look. Yeah, like I I've, look like it's reflecting everything around it. Yes, and I've read um, David Pauliti's uh, book. Yes, on that subject, he discussed it. Yeah, it's quite jarring too. But I don't. This wasn't. I mean, that meaning like it. It, it was like it just seemed like I don't want to use the term like an angel because it had insect like wings. Okay, but it was like this glittering almost like celestial thing and it was just suspended there you know and as i said what the hell is that my daughter points right at it and she goes it's a fairy daddy it's a fairy and she was very excited and i think it saw her at that point like it shifted like that and then it went woof like right over the roof of my suv at incredible speed and it was out of there i mean like it was a very powerful flyer like this thing was like it was hauling you know what Okay, and I think that what happened is this thing because of the flurries and the wind. I think it like maybe it hit a power line or something like that, or you know maybe an owl struck it. I mean I don't think owls hunt when there's snow flurries. I don't know, but you know it, I think it crash landed in the street there, and it was hurt. And I just happened upon it, you know, and and then it got like startled and it adrenalized recovered a little bit and jumped up and then it was able to get it get out of dodge but uh it was just so bizarre you know and i drove the rest of the way home like this like you know i was like totally shaken up and i mean my daughter was happy as a as a pig and whatever because she saw a real fairy and the timing couldn't have been better because she was starting to doubt santa claus existed and then when she said that i said well you know fairies are real right and she was like Oh yeah, you know. And after that, you know, it brought me a couple of years. Okay, <laughs> but um, so we walked into the house, and you know, I was like, "What was this thing? What was it?" You know, and this thing's wingspan was probably like three or four feet. It wasn't a tiny thing. I mean, I think it was about you know a foot tall, maybe maybe a little more. But it had big wings. The wings were sizable, and uh, you know, I was able to like try and gauge them by sitting in my truck and then fit, using another vehicle engaging the distance and yeah it, it, it was at least a three-foot wingspan and um but we walked in the house and i was like talking to myself at this point i walked right into the computer and you know my daughter was like bragging to her mother about this stuff and i'm like looking up bats largest bat in north america nope 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 this and that i mean it was like bigger than a megalorna dragonfly from the carboniferous period except obviously it wasn't a dragonfly yeah. you know but uh and it was just incredible to see. I, I just like my whole world was like, okay, fairies are real. What else is real? 
You know, I mean, I don't know what this thing was. Was it an extraterrestrial? What, I mean, are these, you know, my, my agent, Ben agent, she was like, oh, it's called a brownie. They're larger fairies and they live in trees and they, you know, like sleep and like, you know, hang out with squirrels in their nests and stuff like that. And they eat fruits and berries and all this other stuff. So that's what she said, as if like she was some expert on this or what, you know, like I'm like, well, how many brownies have you hung out with? I mean, really? So this was winter. So then that following like May or something like that, I decided to do it like an experiment. And so my daughter and I, I think it was like a Sunday, we went into the woods, you know, maybe a hundred yards. I, I don't remember, but, uh, and we found like a tree stump that had been clean cut. I don't know why there's a clean tree stump in the middle of the woods. Somebody cut down a tree, one tree, no joke. Um, and it was a big tree, so I don't know how that works. But anyway, and we brought a bowl of these um, big, delicious Costco blueberries. You know, the big suckers. They're like the best. And you know, washed them, brought them, put them in this you know, heavy plastic bowl. And we sat them on this tree stump. And uh, we sat there in a log. And I was trying to, I felt like an idiot trying to talk to these creatures as if, they, as if they were watching and stuff, you know, try and see if they'd make contact or what, et cetera. You know, nothing happened. Thank God. Um, you know, I, I would have had a heart attack and died and all that. I don't think they were falling for it if they were aware and all that. So after like an hour, we left and then she had school the next day. So she asked me to go out there and check on the, the blueberries and stuff. And so I go out there and, uh, the bowl's there in the same exact spot, but the berries are gone. The bowl is picked clean, okay? Immaculate, not disturbed or anything like that. And I was like talking about this on um, on another show, the one show where I did an interview on this. Uh, I, I don't want to mention the show because that might, you know, be competition or whatever and stuff. But uh, I, I don't compete. I just do this okay. for fun. Well, so the, it's a show called Into the Fray, and Shannon Legro is the hostess. So she was interviewing me about this sighting because she really wanted – she was the one who could – everything, okay? I didn't want to talk about it. I did not want to talk about it. You know, people think, like, he's seeing fairies. I don't know. But um, so I was like – it was weird, I told her, because, I mean, the bull was fairly heavy, but not that heavy. I said if a deer, for example, stuck its face in there and ate these blueberries – you know, or any other animal, raccoon, whatever, there'd be a mess. You know what I mean? Like they'd be chewing and, you know, there'd be juice and bits of skin and they would have disturbed the bowl. It was like something just picked the stuff out, you know, like that, very cleanly and carefully. And all. And I said to her, but I did told her, I said, I, I'm sure some teenager was walking through the woods, just, you know, ate the blueberries. And she goes, right, because if you were walking through the woods and you saw a bowl of blueberries just sitting there on a tree stump, for no reason, you would just pick those up, think they were safe, and start eating them. And I was like, you know, you're right. It reminded me of one of those Shrek movies where he's like, Donkey, there's a plate of fresh waffles in the middle of the woods. Don't you find that a little, you know, curious? I was like, no. You know, and I was like, it's a good point. So I don't know what happened to the blueberries, but they were gone. And, you know, that was the story. So. Odd. Next time, do it on one of the equinoxes. What's an oh? I got gotcha. you. Yeah, I don't know. It just you know. I mean, I'm thinking about putting like a you know, trail camera out there and trying it again, but I'm worried somebody's going to steal my trail camera because it won't be my property. You know. 
and I don't want to lose a fancy trail camera to some, you know, person. Well, thank you for sharing that. That's that's an incredible experience, and mm-hmm. I really feel humbled that you shared it with us. Oh, the other story is much more disturbing, but you know, we can leave this. We we could cut here. That's fine. Okay. Well, I'm going to end the broadcast, but I want you to stick around because I have a question for you. Sure. Would you like me to tell your uh, viewers and listeners, by the way, the best place to go check out the books and stuff? Definitely. I'm sorry. The barking got to me. Please do. Please. That's why why I have cats. Although, you know, one of our cats, the three-year-old, Mace, he actually can impersonate people. And I'm not kidding. Yeah. At at one point, he was impersonating my... uh, he impersonates my daughter and he could, he would say mommy and impersonate her. Okay. And I, so, you know, I would get up cause I was worried or whatever and go rush into her bedroom and it was the cat. Okay. And I, she did it once in my office. But once I, I, you know, realized it was him. He was embarrassed. So now the other day I'm sound asleep and I hear dad like that. And I'm like, huh? I'm like, Ava. And then I hear, Dad, I'm like, I'm like Ava, and now I sit up and I'm wide awake now, and I'm listening, and I hear it a third time, and I jump out of bed, I open the door, and the cat's standing outside the bedroom door. <laughs> She's sound asleep, her door's closed. I couldn't even have heard her if I tried. Okay, it was him. And so, I mean, Siberians, they, you know, they're they're arboreal predators. They hunt birds. I think they're able to impersonate birds, but this cat he can say human words sometimes and it's very you know freaky but um and it ain't just me saying this i mean if you go on the siberian pages you'll see their cats will say mommy and daddy and stuff like that so they're they're very uh talented but anyway um yeah monsters and marine mysteries is uh, and any of my books from the cronus rising series and stuff is available on amazon um or through barnes and noble um but uh, if people want to go to my website, which is either maxhawthorne.com or cronusrising.com, there's even a free book section there where there's free excerpts they can download from all the books and stuff. And uh, there are certain Amazon programs that they have, like uh, where you can actually read the Kindle versions for free too. So I encourage people to check it out. And I have read Diablo and Plague from the Chronos Rising, and I can highly recommend them. You're a fascinating individual, and I, I love your writing. Thank you. If you'd like, uh, I can send you a Kindle copy of the first Cronus Rising novel. It's oh, on the house. I love that. Yeah. You. It's a much bigger read, and it'll make a lot more sense once you, you know, having read Diablo and stuff. Okay. So. That's going to do it, guys. I hope you've enjoyed today's show. Weird Realities has a lot of great content scheduled from now until our one-year anniversary, October 31st. So be sure to like, subscribe, follow, and join our Facebook group so you don't miss any of the great stuff we've got coming your way. Until next time, know that the team here at Weird Realities appreciate your support. And you can stay up to date on all our stuff at our Linktree account. And that's going to be L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E backslash Weird Realities. And that's weird with a Y. Until next time, stay weird. <laughs>